The Humanalist Podcast sheds light on the humans behind the analytics that improve the things we interact with in our daily lives. We expose the great work that people are doing using information, technology, and the scientific process to make the world a better place. From the perspective of endlessly curious scientists and practitioners who think the data and insights come from the most unlikely sources. We're your hosts. I'm Nicole Decay. And I'm Emily Pelosi. Welcome to the Humanalist Podcast. We have with us today Summer Fuente and Hannah Decay, my sister-in-law, if you notice the same last name. We also have Thi Nguyen, who is one of our creators on the podcast, who has put together this episode. So she will be asking uh, the majority of the questions, and I'm going to hand it over to you, Thi. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And can you tell us a little bit like where you are, what jobs you've had, and what your title is currently? Great. Yeah. Hi, I'm Summer Puente. Currently, I'm an administrative specialist for Boulder County Government. I specifically work with the Head Start program. That's a federally funded preschool program. And I help them with any administrative task that tends to look a lot like more external facing. So contracts and staff files. I also do some programming with parents, like our basically our PTA. I have a background that is varied and my passion ultimately is education. And I have a lot of experience working with uh, low-income first-generation college-bound students and their families. So I have found my way through many jobs to um, this county position in Boulder. And um, this is Hannah DK. So normally I work for King County, uh, which is in Washington. Seattle is in King County. And I work as an occupational education and training coordinator. So basically what I do is I help run the education side of a program out of Sterling Community College that is it's run by King County, even though we're on a college campus. And we help at-risk youth, so 16 to 21 year olds who have dropped out of high school and decide they want to go back and get a GED and go to college. And so we help uh, with the education side. We also do some housing assistance. We have a food bank, clothing bank. Every uh, student that comes in is assigned a social worker. We also have counseling on site and job training and internship placement. Before that, I did Teach for America um, after I graduated school down in uh, Watts in LA. And then I taught for a couple more years in San Francisco before moving back home to Seattle. And that's my, that's my normal job. <laughs> And I've, I've known too, with, within the pandemic, you've been have to reshift, like distribute it into all these fields. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so one thing that I learned working for government is that they have something called redeployment whenever there's an emergency. And redeployment means exactly that, you your job changes. Wherever there's a need, you know, they look and see what programs, what positions can flex and move to serve a different need that the public has. So that might look like a call center because suddenly you have everyone in the public with a million questions and they need a, you know, they need to staff a call line, preferably in more than one language. So, you, you know, you're kind of leveraging your, all your skills of your workers to um, meet that need of the public who are just seeking information. It also might look like brand new projects. It might look like, depending on what the emergency is. So Boulder County recently had a pretty big flood several years ago. And so what's interesting is that a lot of the county workers refer to the time as like, was that before the flood or after the flood? Because it was such a major event in our city. That was an interesting effort because a lot of it was focused on a rebuild after the flood, which was very expensive and kind of went on, but the emergency itself didn't last very long. Um, COVID, obviously, we're sort of in that, you know, in a time frame where we're responding and we're also 
recovering at the same time. So you have you have funds and dollars from FEMA that that do different things, and you have to classify your role as in those different categories depending on what funds you're getting from the federal government. So I've learned a lot. I've had a couple different COVID projects I've worked on. So my first redeployment was we created a COVID recovery center, which was a place for folks experiencing homelessness. So it's a shelter who had COVID. And the second project I was redeployed to after that was in the public health department. So I was a bilingual and bicultural communication specialist. So helping them translate and communicate their social media, their formal documents to our Spanish speaking population in the county. And now I'm back with my actual job, but it still looks like COVID work because we are a preschool. We have three sites and how do you open up school for the fall? So we're preparing for that. So everything is still very COVID focused, (laughs) even though like technically I am back in my original position. Uh, Hannah here. So similar to Boulder, King County does redeploy employees. And so in March, I started asking for people who would volunteer to staff um, like calling centers, as well as then start working at um, COVID isolation and quarantine sites. So in March, I volunteered to leave my normal job and um, went to start help, help open a site on Aurora where I spent the last four months. And really what the site was for, um, it's kind of similar to what Summer was doing was it was a place for people who are experiencing homelessness to go isolate if they've been exposed to someone with COVID or um, if they had mild symptoms and need to be hospitalized, they could recover there. So we served anyone in the greater Seattle area or greater King County area. But as time progressed, we started trying to focus on higher behavioral health needs um, clients. So people who um, needed more behavioral health care or were needing lots of med- medications like methadone as well as like registered sex offenders who couldn't be in other sites where there might be children. And then can you tell us a little bit about the challenges you faced in your responsibilities as things are changing so quickly, week by week? I mean, we had the same issues as Hannah, where you have a population of people who have different needs. So our, our CRC, the COVID Recovery Center, was staffed by volunteers, people who had never worked in a shelter experience before, people who largely had never dealt with a population of people who had mental health concerns and addiction needs and all the intersections of what that means for their for their care. And at that time, in the early days in March, we didn't have tests. So we didn't even know who had COVID. What was happening was that you had folks who had maybe been in a long-term shelter or outdoor situation where they had a, a cough for three years, but that cough kept them out of a regular shelter now. And so folks who were ill needed a place to go. And we also, at the same time, we would have folks who were being discharged from hospitals coming into the CRC. So we had a higher suspicion that maybe there was a COVID diagnosis or something more extreme, but we don't really know. I have been trained in like shelter operations and disaster preparedness because I have done work in the past for AmeriCorps. I've worked with a lot of diverse populations, and so I and I've worked in a like a hospital scenario like situation too. So I felt really comfortable in a lot of the sanitary and cleanliness. But there was a lot of folks who were signing up as volunteers from just like members from the community who had no experience. And I think that that was like an incredible effort of people willing to put themselves in that space. And also, how do you you don't know what's going to happen in the middle of the night? There was a lot of incidents, and there was a lot of learning, and there was a lot, a lot of stress. 
And it was also a place that people could rest. And it was a place that people preferred over the shelter because they knew that even though the shelters had shifted to social distancing so that they could house fewer people, it was also a more relaxed environment. And just like Hannah said, if someone needed methadone or someone like, they were still getting all that care that they needed. And we were creative about how we got them their methadone. They weren't gonna go to a methadone center. They were gonna get it dropped off. But what was funny is the RCRC ended up in a, um, I guess it was technically a senior center that was attached to a rec center, which had been shut down, obviously, for COVID. And there's no smoking anywhere. Boulder is like a super healthy city. And so there's like no smoking anywhere publicly in these parks. And they had to make a like emergency order so that people could smoke on the patio because you had people who like needed a cigarette. There's nowhere around for them to smoke a cigarette. And so they like designated this little patio area in the middle of the park for them to smoke. So even things like that, like how can we meet people where they're at and let this be a space where they can recover because that's what they need to do here is they need to recover. There's just like a variety of, you don't know what you're walking into in the shift. And I got put on a night shift and we had, you know, we had three shifts day, night and overnight, you know, and it was just this incredible community effort of people leaning in. Then on the public health side, they didn't have anyone that spoke Spanish, And if you have ever worked with a community program or people who don't speak English as their first language, you're immediately thinking about who needs the information the most, because we're going to get all this info in English. But I mean, Boulder County, we've seen a huge disproportionate rate of Latinx people who have COVID. We knew that that's what the numbers would show. So when we had the data to show, we're like, okay, yeah, here it is. They were delayed in the response, and also they knew that they needed everything in Spanish. Like, this needed to be translated three weeks ago. Let's go. Like, we have work to do. <laughs> a lot of work. Just a lot of, you know. Adapting. Mm-hmm. Just grind it out. Snack. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so King County-wise, I would kind of describe it as, like, if you were going to a startup, <laughs> that's how it felt in the first um, like month, two months, three months is you're basically stepping in and there's no precedence for this. So they have an idea of what they want these roles to look like. So we had an idea of, it was like a three-pronged approach. We had behavioral health as one prong, we had nursing, and then we had site management, which was logistics. And then you had the site director that oversaw all of it. But we needed to program TVs at one point because we are, so what was unique about our space is it wasn't a motel or any shelter. It was actually modular units. So kind of like big trailers, they set onto a gravel lot and then built ramps between and that was it. And there were four rooms per trailer. Um, but so it, it's a gravel lot. There's not a lot there. So it's bringing out, okay, like, where is a smoking place? And how do we de-ice these ramps? And so just the, like, there was a tremendous amount of leaning in, like Summer said. Okay, what job needs to be done? How can I help? Okay, we're getting a shipment. Like, how do we take inventory? Amazon is sending us 6,000 bowls. Okay, where are we going to put these? Like, how do we organize this? As well as, because I was on the logistics side, dealing with all the supply chain issues of, we can't get hand sanitizer, so what can we do? Like, who can help out? And I had, like, friends who would, like, oh, I have a 3D printer. I can print you face shields if you need them. Or, like, ear savers, because we're wearing masks all the time. Not only was the community on-site super supportive, my community outside of that, my family and friends, people all stepped in to help with, like, okay, what do you need? Because it was all hands on deck. And we were doing, we were doing two 12-hour shifts at the time. And there was a period of, like, 10 days straight where I was on um, day shift every day, just 12 hours. And then we switched to where it was night shift, but then I did day stuff. So it was really a crazy, crazy amount of work. I've never done that much work in my life. And I hope I never have to again, because <laughs> I found my limits. But the people were amazing. Like people really stepped in, they stepped in to help. And that was 
wonderful. One thing that was really interesting at the site was we had a lot of veterans who volunteered to come and do work on site oh. and a lot of them compared it to being deployed. Mm -hmm. like, it, like it looks like it, you're on this gravel lot, it feels like it, but at the end of the day, you, you can still go home to your family, which is nice. But the, they talked about it, it was almost harder because there was not that time to hang out and be social and to decompress. You were go, go, go 12 hours a day and then you'd go home and sleep and come back. He's like, yeah, but when you're deployed, you like go have a beer with your buddies after. I'm like you can't do that here. And I thought it was a really interesting comparison because it's not one I obviously haven't served. So it wasn't something I would have thought of. Yeah. Um, but it also said a lot about the fact there were so many veterans, like the type of people that volunteer to go into these sites and help out when they don't have to like volunteer and risk their lives of like some guys walking off site and he's COVID positive and what can we do to get him to stay? And they're like running, like trying to put PPE on as they go. How do we, you know, stop this guy from leaving and convince him to stay so we can both help him and protect our community. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point because we had, we can't keep people there. It's a suggestion and it's in the, it's in the good of the public health, right? If they have a place they can isolate, but there's plenty of people who prefer to be outdoors and away from people and who don't want to be in this space. We just have to make it be as appealing as possible to be in this space because it's a choice. I think it's also very interesting. So we're talking about two different counties and how they handled it. And Hannah's talking about volunteers, but they're volunteers that were county employees. Oh, no, you... you Not all volunteers. There would be a lot, especially for behavioral health, we have agency staff come in or people who sometimes did volunteer. Most people were paid. Yeah. We contracted out a lot of the work because we couldn't, we couldn't redeploy everybody. And people who are in King County didn't want to redeploy. And not to mention the population of King County, um, the, their employees, the average age is 55. So there are a lot of people who are older who are more at risk, so they weren't necessarily willing to go into these sites. So we were contracting out, like the nurses were contracted, some behavioral health specialists were contracted, but some were, were volunteers, but a lot less than it sounds like was happening in Boulder. Yeah, we redeployed staff members to give us time to hire. So we did hire people in that period, which is pretty unusual because most people are just being redeployed. They're not doing any new hires and all of our temporary hires are on hold. So we did have a few people who were willing to slide over and it was also intergovernmental. So we had city workers and county workers together and the other, you know, municipal governments that were smaller outside Boulder had folks too. So people from Longmont King, which is like a nearby city within the county, we did have a lot of collaboration, um, which made it tricky and also excellent because you don't often see county and city money and efforts to unite. And they threw up a shelter in a very short window. They're like, we have a shelter, let's go. And so it's incredible. They're like, we're ready, who's ready to staff it? Let's do this. Nothing moves that quickly in government. So because you two are working in the realm of children's services and education, can you share with us how people are worried about when it comes to children and COVID-19, especially given the fall is looming? <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. I think there, there are several concerns. I think that, like, the big one I think I'm concerned about right now is children as like super spreaders um, in terms of, I was thinking about like, if I were still teaching in a classroom when I taught eighth grade, I would see 150 students in one day. So 150 kids would come through my door, interact with each other, interact with like, you know, another 300 kids minimum throughout the school and then go home to their families. And most of them are riding public transit. They're interacting with people there. Then they go home, their parents are working. So I think the big concern in education is just the exposure level, like how many people you're being exposed to and how difficult it would be to contact trace. 
when you're around that many people. Not to mention that you can't protect any type of like, if there are kids who are vulnerable or teachers who are vulnerable, they can't work, they can't be there at all. There's, I think, the first concern of like the logistics of going back to school. Uh, the second concern is the logistics of not going back to school in terms of how does that affect our workforce in terms of parents who need childcare? What are they going to do? How do? How do we move forward? And then the third piece also is if we do not go back to school, how is this affecting students? So already we know that children of color are going to be like far behind their white counterparts. And this is a generalization, but that's something we know. And when you're now, they're not allowed to go to school and they don't have parents who can necessarily stay home and work with them or have the skills to teach them. So there's going to be this echo and this like ripple effect as we go out from here, even if we just go back to school right away, which I think is unlikely, that's going to follow these kids for, for years. One thing I would add is that teachers have almost no voice in this decision. You have administrators who are listening to parents and hopefully public health officials but parents have voice in this country and in the school system that is different than other countries. I mean, I think about work I've done with Latinx youth where a teacher might be seen as someone very respected. The teacher's decision is final. And here we have a version of a helicopter parent or a very engaged parent. If they are an English speaking parent, they're allowed to engage, they're allowed to influence, they're allowed to complain in a different way than other families, other cultures, and other communities. I've been trying to educate myself because I'm not a parent and I'm not a teacher anymore and I work for an education program. So how can I listen to others about their concerns so that when I'm at a table where they don't have a voice, I can hopefully offer that up? There's a lot of things that concern me because head starts a preschool. How do you keep preschoolers socially distant? The answer is that you do not. So if you don't, and you're a teacher, and you're putting yourself in that space because you have to, is it a choice? Like, it's not a choice. And is there hazard pay? There's all these questions, right? There's all these questions that I've been like, what are teachers saying? What are teachers concerned about? Because there's going to be things I never think about because I'm not in the classroom anymore. And my job now that I'm an ad administrator, I'm tier four. I can work from home. So if I have safety... What can I say and what can I bring up that's going to make sure that everybody feels safe? Personally, staying home is safe and by all the recommendations of our public health officials. <laughs> and we know that families that are low income and families that are of color have to work outside the home. What about those kids? I mean, there's just, there's such disparity in the country that if, if we're not going to get support from our government, people have to make a choice of life or death, work or death. It's stressful because how do you set up a preschool? to be socially distant. My research focuses on trauma and trauma in the workplace. And a lot of people are talking right now about how we're going through one of the most collective traumatic experiences that anyone has ever seen. And so when we're looking at that from like a trauma lens and uh, intersectionality of trauma, there are so many issues that come up in terms of how this is going to impact just everybody and the way that you interact with people when being traumatized. Like we're having a hard time thinking and being creative right now. A lot of people are because that's what trauma does to your brain is it dampens your ability to dream and think of a brighter future. And especially right now when so many of us can't see a brighter future coming. I also think about the parents who are going through this and just getting traumatized and being forced to go to work right now because, again, because they have to, because we don't have assistance for people 
and, and a backup in this country for people to be able to be safe right now, which is frustrating and sad. I mean, we are seeing more funds in, in uh, early childhood mental health services. So we're getting more dollars, we're getting more grants, we're getting more assistance, more staffers, more interns, more, you know, social um, support from social workers coming in. That's excellent because we're going to need it. And that's a piece of the puzzle, right? In a, in a Head Start program, you've got wraparound services, you've got dental care, you've got medical care, you've got helping families with housing and food assistance. A lot of the times we see that when, when someone first engages with a county government, it's often housing. So they need support with housing. And then hopefully if they enter like a housing and human services type department, we can then, you know, link them with all these other these other points of contact. And we know from trauma-informed care and many other fields, right, that like your resiliency depends on your social network. If you have support, you can survive, you can get through, you can do the next step. And so Head Start is critical. And we have a big contention around school and childcare because these families need to be essential workers in the public. They need childcare to be able to do that. So there's a huge pressure and huge push to open early child, childhood centers and preschools to allow people to work. But we're looking at Sweden, for example, who didn't close, who looked like, what benefited their economy? When they've got this huge number of deaths, they didn't see any economic benefit. So what are we telling ourselves? Yeah, and one thing that's really interesting is I think this is really like, I think this education as childcare piece that is, I think, somewhat, u- not unique in the United States, but I think People tend to see education as like, I send my kid there, they're taken care of for this many hours, and that's it. Like, that's all they need. Kind of discounting the role that the parent has to take in terms of education. And now that the classroom is not available, what do people do when we, we treat schools as like, this is daycare? And one thing I meant to bring up earlier that I didn't quite get to is we are assuming that we can keep school online if we have to. Like, school kids don't have to go. We're not even getting into the fact that not all youth have internet have, have, have a computer. Like, how do you assume like all kids need to go? And so when I think it was Shoreline School District, when they decided not to close initially or not to have any online instruction, it was because they couldn't guarantee that all their students had access. So they didn't, which their response was to then just have no school at all, which is also not a great response, (laughs) but just, it it really brings up that issue of like, how do we, if we are going to continue having some kind of school and education online, how do we make sure that everyone has access to the resources they need to do that? having internet at home, it's having a computer, but then where is the parental role in that? And can a parent do that and work from home if they're if they're working and they're at least privileged to be able to work from home? How do you manage all of those jobs at once? We have um, two school districts in our county. So there's Boulder Valley School District and St. Brain Valley School District. Boulder Valley School District immediately got laptops for every student in their district. They also got hotspots from the library. So this was a city side effort, incredible effort for if you didn't have internet, you know, a hotspot was a great option. And they focus on the kids first, like let's make sure that the students have what they need. And then once the ask and the call for those stopped, they did it for the community because they knew that there are many people who like, okay, maybe you can work from home, maybe, right? So like there's so many jobs that you can't work from home, but if you can and you need a hotspot, or even if it's not for work and you need a hotspot, come get one because that's what we're going to do for you. So that was like an incredible effort, but we didn't see that on the same brain side, which is more in the 
you know, it's a little bit more of a rural school district. It's more in the East, just the quality of like even the website and the resources and how to get to what they're offering. Um, there was a huge disparity. The only way we can close that gap is, is give things away. That's what they did. So I thought that was incredible. When our Head Start program pivoted to online preschool, which is hilarious to me, online preschool, but we knew that like the best we could do was Facebook learning. Everything that we're going to try, it has to be on a phone because Head Start's not part of BBSD. We look to them for guidance on decision-making on snow days and other collaborations, but Head Start's a federally funded program. So it's, it's a little bit different. We knew that like the best we can count on was like a parent has a phone. Yeah, I think we're, we haven't even touched on the impact it has on like, the social development of children, of not being around their peers, and especially when they're so young, like preschool, if they aren't having that chance to socialize and interact with other children, they're going to be falling behind de developmentally. And for I mean, so many students, I mean, not even just young students, like that is a part of school, that experience, it's that social piece. And right now they're all missing out on that. And they're missing out on building those social skills and developing. And I think we're going to be seeing like the ripple effects of this for, for years after. Yeah, I was thinking a lot about that as hearing about these mandatory mask wearing for kindergartners of a big part of socializing, like you said, and reading facial expressions. And if half your face is covered, what does that mean for these young kids? As a teacher, I think about trying to like, so you do you enforce as your job as a teacher in addition to like classroom managing and teaching to then enforce that all students wear their masks? And I think about like the issues I would have with an eighth grader being like, no, I'm not going to do that. At what point are then masks going to become a discipline issue? And if you don't have teachers who are culturally responsive and understand how to work with like children of diverse backgrounds, especially like children of color, if like that teacher is white, like I was, then you're going to have discipline issues over like a student not wearing their mask. And it's such a bigger piece to like, it's not just because these are the rules I'm asking you to, it's for your safety, it's for your peers' safety, it's for your family's safety. Does a teacher's job become to, to try and police all of that? And how, how do you do that? How, I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> Please help. <laughs> Based on all the community coming together, people volunteering and dedicating, putting their lives to just serve their community, like what are, here are some of your recommendations and tips that folks can do to like, get more involved in their county right now? One that I've been screaming from the mountains top, mountaintops is to get involved with a board of commissions. So a board and a commission is a group of volunteers who inform city or county staff on some topic or project. So I'm on the Pedestrian Action Committee, which Boulder has a lot of goals to become a very pedestrian-friendly and accessibility-friendly city. We've got lots of cyclists, we've got lots of pedestrians, it's, you know, lots of mountains and trails and open space. So how do we favor people over cars? I'm on this committee and what I like about it is that I can help inform and bring up questions around signage in different languages, on accessibility. My sister uses a wheelchair, so I'm always thinking about accessibility and how to advocate for spaces that are just more available um, for people to use. So I like that committee. Um, a, lot of, a lot of them have shifted online. And so if, if you just look up like boards and commissions in your city, they often will have a like, we, are, we have seats open, here's the list, here's what that project is, here's the application. You usually do have to apply because they want to see that you are interested somehow. But basically the city staff or the county staff 
might work on a proposal and then you can edit it or they might want you know if you you might have voting power depending on what board or commission that you're on i run the like i said the policy council i help run the policy council for head start and so it looks like a pta but basically that body which can be anybody from the public votes on our hiring they do interviews with our new hires we include them in that process any change we make to bylaws or you know, they're in front of our funding, what we're doing with that money. And so usually it looks like Head Start parents because they have that investment in their own preschool, but it can be anybody from the community. So I'm really interested in making that, that a more diverse voice because I think people should be involved in, in their government when they can, are of a certain economic status, who have the time. They don't look like the community necessarily, right? They're not as diverse as they could be. A big piece that's always missing is the local college students. They don't join local government in this way. They might protest. That might be the way that it's accessible for them. But I think a board and commission is a great way that you can kind of get in and figure out how they do things. Uh, yeah, I can add on to that. Like King County frequently put out like RFPs, requests for proposals, and nonprofits might submit grants. And community members can volunteer to be a part of those committees that review grants and vote on them. So that's a great way to get involved. Uh, I think the biggest thing also is just to make sure you vote. <laughs> Uh, King County, a lot of times we have projects that are funded through levies. Do your research and know what you're voting for. And pay your taxes, please. <laughs> and as someone I think we both really focused on our lens, which is like through government, but also t in terms of like taking care of your community, like check on your neighbors. Buy nothing groups and community groups like next door, they can be a great way to like check on people, see like, what do you need? How can I help? Um, and stay connected and remind yourself, especially with things being so trying with COVID and um, like there's Black Lives Matter movement. Thinking about like how can I support my community and people around me, especially when right now is so isolating to so many people, especially like people who are elderly who live alone or might not be able to see people. Just think about like how can I help? How can I connect with my community? Whether it's like your family, your neighbors, um, or a little further than that even. The neighbor kids, they leave notes on my front doorstep and it's the most precious thing. I love it so much. <laughs> Thank you for coming and talking to us about your respective cities and what special things you're doing in this wild time that we're living in. Thank you. Nice right. to meet you, Hannah. Good luck. Nice to meet you. Nice. Bye, y'all. Thank you so much to Summer Puente and Hannah Decay. And thank you to our producers of this episode, Lee Callahan and Sarah Cannon, and our project manager, Fee, who also helped with this episode. Thanks to the rest of our team, Sam Cannon and Josh Weaver. We couldn't have gotten this far without you. And thank you so much to Nicole Tiraviluamala, who put together our theme song. Check out his website. He's super talented. Until next time. <laughs>